All right, I'll have everybody take their seats and I'll, I'll open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for today. We thank you for your grace, your mercy. It's new every morning. And uh, Lord, we do pray as we look at your word that you'd help us to understand the doctrines of the faith and to be able to jettison that which is false. We also pray, Heavenly Father, you'd help us to be able to be equipped to contend for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, yeah. Did anybody get, if you don't have a handout from last time, it's all about systematic theology. I have last time. Um, if you don't have one, raise your hand. And then, by the way, we'll be using this quite often. In fact, we have a lot of material just on this one slide to get through. I would, if we get through this one slide today, I'll be very happy. You'll see we have got a lot of scripture reading and different things to read. So um, if we get through that, that'll be good. But we're going to be doing this course on Calvinism. Are you a Calvinist? And it's a really an excuse to get into some systematic theology. One of the reasons we want to do that is oftentimes we are asked, are you a Calvinist? And that's a loaded question. What people are really asking is, do you believe in the doctrine of predestination? Well, yes, we do believe in the doctrine of predestination, and Calvin was correct there. But Calvin was wrong in a lot of other areas, or in a lot of other areas, that we would disagree with. And so we want to show where we agree and disagree. So if someone asks us someday, are you a Calvinist? We will have a CD that we can hand out and say, this is where we agree and disagree. So here, we're going to be focusing on this slide where we disagree with Calvin broadly. We'll get into greater detail as we go. But what I want everyone to see here is that there are tremendous doctrines, whether it's the baptism, the Lord's Supper, the nature of the law, sanctification, the relationship of church and Israel, what is the church. These are very significant doctrines where we think Calvin really missed it biblically. But as I say that, some of you who have a lot of affinity towards Calvin will realize we also agree with him on the center point of the gospel, which is justification by faith alone, and the antecedent to that, which is regeneration, all because of God's election. So I think by disagreeing with him where he's unbiblical shows us that when we do agree in the doctrines of election, it'll show, I think, people that it's because election is biblical. That gives us more credibility, I think. Now, let's begin where, where we disagreed. Last time we talked about the relationship between the covenants. I will address this again as it comes up, but Calvinists see all of theology in the Bible as a result of two different covenants, the covenant of works versus the covenant of grace. So the covenant of works is what they term the situation to be with Adam and Eve prior to the fall. So, and Bob, we'll talk more about this later. Bob and I don't see the term covenant in the first three chapters of Genesis. Nonetheless, they call it a covenant of works. After the fall of Adam and Eve... Everything after that is referred to as a covenant of grace. So whether it's the Noatic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, or the new covenant, they would place it all under the rubric of the covenant of grace. That is one of the big issues that creates trouble, as you're going to see. Why? Because if everything is under the rubric of grace... They see a one-to-one relationship between the Mosaic Covenant 
and the new covenant. As the people in the old covenant had circumcision for babies, the reformed have baptism for babies. Why? Because they're one and the same. So that's, you'll see, creates a lot of trouble. So we disagree with them there that no, there are, the Mosaic covenant should not be referred to as a covenant of grace. The relationship between the law and the gospel, we talked about that, but here's where we left out. We left off on this, the third use of the law. For Calvin, as he looked at the Mosaic law, he saw that there were three uses for it. The first one we would heartily agree with. The first use of the law, according to Calvin, was that the law of Moses functioned like a mirror in that it showed us who we truly were as sinners, sinners who cannot earn salvation, sinners who are fall, fall far short of God's glory. Now, we t- would say to that a hearty amen. In fact, turn your Bibles to Romans three nineteen through 20, because I want to show you that the Apostle Paul, who speaks for Christ, himself says that, yes, the Mosaic Law was designed by God to show us that we are lost sinners, that we need Christ and salvation through grace alone in order to be saved. Romans three nineteen through 20, listen to what Paul says. Here's his conclusion that it reaches after he's condemned both Jews and Gentiles. Romans three nineteen through 20, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. The law that Paul is referring to there is certainly the Mosaic law. That's been the law that was in Paul's mind all the way through chapter 2 and here into 3. But now notice he says, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Let me just stop there. I've mentioned this numerous times, but it bears repeating. How can the law of Moses shut the mouth of a Gentile who was never under the law of Moses? Well, there's an implied greater to lesser argument. And the argument goes like this. If the greater Jews, who are God's chosen people, who had the greatest law ever given to man up until that point, the Mosaic Law, could not bring about righteousness through their works, how much less lesser Gentiles, who are not God's chosen people, who had lesser revelation, how could they ever bring about righteousness? So do you see then, because of the failure of Israel with the Mosaic law, it shuts the mouth of every man, Jew and Gentile. That's implied. Now notice in verse 20, here's the purpose of the law. This is Romans 3.20. Paul says, because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So notice there at the end of verse 20, Paul says that the purpose of the Mosaic law was to reveal humanity as sinful, showing us that the only way out is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ, all by his grace. So we would agree with Calvin there, the first use of the law as a mirror. That's the way I like to think of it. You look in a mirror, it shows you the way you really are. That's the purpose of the law. It shows you the sinner that you really are. We would agree with him there. Now here's where I would start to have an issue. The second use of the law is Calvin taught that the law was used as a restrainer. And what he would typically say is that the law can be used by the civil magistrates as a threat against lawbreakers. Now, I would agree that civil magistrates like the police are 
designed by God to restrain evil. Paul warns, remember in Romans 13, he says, If you do evil, be afraid, for they do not bear the sword in vain. That's Romans 13.4. So yes, that's true. But here, I think Calvin is equivocating. Now, what's equivocation? Equivocation is where you take a term and you change the meaning or the definition of the term. The example I like to use, if I say it's cool outside, hey, Will, my son's nine, put your jacket on, it's cool outside. I'm using cool to refer to temperature. If he says to me, it's okay, Dad, I'm a cool cat, he's using cool as a term for hipness, right? That's equivocation, using the term cool in two different ways. Well, here, notice the discussion in Calvin has been about the Mosaic Law, And when he comes to the second use of the law, all of a sudden he starts talking about not the Mosaic law, but the law used by civil governments. Well, we as the United States have law that people are governed by, but notice it does not come from Moses or from Sinai. Now, why does Calvin conflate the two? Are you you with me? So we went from the Mosaic Law all of a sudden to laws that civil governments use. Well, those aren't one and the same. But the reason why Calvin uses them one and the same is because the church is Israel. And wherever the church is around the world, you really have, in his opinion, the desire to have theocracies. Because after all, for the new Israel... Wherever the church is, it should govern. And the law of Moses, therefore, is still in effect. That's really what you end up having. And these are some of the problems that we see with Calvinism. So here, I would agree with Calvin that, yes, the civil magistrates are designed by God to restrain evil. However, I would disagree that the law of Moses was designed to restrain evil. And I want to show you evidence of that. Turn your Bibles to Romans 5. We'll be doing a little bit of a review through Romans here. Turn your Bibles to Romans 5, verses 20 through 21. Romans 5, verses 20 through 21. So remember, Paul has already laid out that we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, chapters 3 through 4. Chapter 5, we have access to God While we are sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrates his love in us for this. While Christ was, or while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. Well, here, notice in Romans 5.20, he again explains the purpose of the law. He says, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Now, stop there for a moment. Notice the purpose statement. The purpose statement is a Hena clause in Greek, so that. The law came in so that the transgression would not be constrained, but rather that it would increase. But, he says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, notice verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So notice here, according to Romans 5.20, the Mosaic law came in not to restrain the evil inclinations of men, but to incite them so that sin could literally be shown to be what it was. Now, the problem wasn't the Mosaic law in and of itself, and I'll show you a quote later from Romans 7 to prove that. The problem was our sin nature. How many in here have ever heard the phrase, they're like water and oil? Most of you probably have heard that. What's the idea behind that? They don't mix. In the same way, our sin nature 
does not mix with the Mosaic law. So the Mosaic law, as Paul says in Romans 7.12, is holy, it's righteous, and it's good. The problem is our sin nature is incited by it. So the law is good, but when it's put in with our sin nature, it doesn't constrain our sin, it inflames it. It incites it. So when we think about Calvin's second use of the law then, that it's designed to restrain evil, realize that's not the Mosaic law's purpose, according to the Apostle Paul. Now, I would agree with Calvin that the civil law is designed to do that, but they are not one and the same. All right, is everyone with me? So you start seeing some issues here. Now, let's go to the third use of the law. And here's where Bob and I have a big difference with Calvin, and we'll show you why biblically. The third use of the law, according to Calvin, was for sanctification. So the idea is once you became a believer justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, I I don't want to be crass, but in some sense you would graduate then as a believer to the law of Moses. And you would use the law of Moses to exhort yourself to obedience and to further holiness as you were greater uh, conformed to the image of Christ. That would be the idea. In fact, listen to what Calvin says. I'll read you, and this gets a little long, and I'll try to skip out what's not relevant. But this is Calvin on the third use of the law from his institutes. He says, quote, he says, the third use of the law is the principal use and more closely connected with its proper end. It has respect to believers in whose hearts the Spirit of God already flourishes and reigns. For although the law is written and engraven on their hearts, he's talking about believers, by the finger of God, that is, although they are so influenced and actuated by the Spirit that they desire to obey God, there are two ways in which they still profit in the law. For it is the best instrument for enabling them daily to learn with greater truth and certainty what that will of the Lord is, which they aspire to follow and confirm them in this knowledge. Now, let's stop there for a moment. If what Calvin is saying is that the law as scripture is profitable for us to read and understand about God and his holiness, I would say a hearty amen. But if he's using the law as a binding code, a binding legal code where you and I say, well, wait, I can't do that, I can't do that, but I have to, I have to, I have to, I have to work harder, try harder. If he's going to use it in that way, I would say, no, 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 that's never the purpose of the Mosaic law. So here's the question. Is Calvin using the third use of the law? Is he using using the law as scripture or as binding legal code? Well, I think we get the answer. I think he's using it as binding legal code. Why? Because listen to what he goes on to say. He says, then because we need not doctrine merely, but exhortation also. Now stop there for a moment. That's a curious line. I hate to be spending time exegeting Calvin, but think about it. We don't need doctrine only, but we need exhortation. Well, doctrine is teaching, and teaching comes from what? Scripture. But exhortation, to me, is part of the Scriptures. When you teach, you exhort. Sometimes you comfort. It depends what the passage is about. But here, he's making a divide between doctrine that we learn from the Word, I think, and the exhortation that comes from the legal aspect 
the binding legal code of the Mosaic law. That's a big problem. So notice he goes on to say that the servant of God will derive this further advantage from the law by frequently meditating upon it. He will be excited. Now remember, he's talking about the Mosaic law as a binding code. He will be excited to obedience. Yeah, Brian. The, I was going to say the law of Moses is not a means of grace. Right. So once we step over the line and include that in sanctification, then uh, we've gone into works theology. Amen. It, it, it just d- doesn't... Uh, That's right. We've been severed from Christ, as Paul put it in Galatians. Amen. You're exactly right. In fact, now listen to how what kind of pride Calvin takes in the law being able to sanctify and make more holy the believer. He says, we will be excited to obedience and confirmed in it. And then he says this, he says, the law acts like a whip to the flesh, urging it on as men do a lazy, sluggish ass. He's talking about that, the animal. He says, even in the case of a spiritual man, inasmuch as he's still burdened with the weight of the flesh, the law is a constant stimulus pricking him forward when he would indulge in sloth. So that's the end of the quote. So Calvin is claiming that going back to the Mosaic law is central to the sanctification of the believer. Now, let's test what Calvin just said with what the Apostle Paul said. Let's turn our Bibles to Romans 7, and let's really see if the Mosaic law, not as Scripture again, yes, Scripture is profitable, but he's using it as a binding code, Binding legal code, is the Mosaic law really able to bring about righteousness in a human being, especially for the believer? Now, before I read, I want you to turn Romans 7, verses 4 through 11. And that's what I have on the screen here. But if you remember in Romans 7, verses 1 through 3, Paul uses an analogy. I'm sorry, not on the screen, on, on my screen. I'm sorry. I said on, on, I didn't mean on that screen. On my screen, I have Romans 7, 4 through 11. But I just want to allude to what happens before that. The first three verses, Paul makes an analogy. And the analogy is that of a woman who is bound legally to her husband as long as the husband is alive. His whole purpose in using that analogy is to imply that obviously when the husband dies, she's free from him, whether good or bad. He uses that to say we were bound at one time to the law of Moses But now that Christ has come and we've trusted in him, we are dead to the law, so we are freed from its binding, and now we are joined to another, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Because the law can never bring about righteousness. Listen to what he says, and let's contrast it with what Calvin was telling us. Romans 7, 4, 3, 11. Paul says, Therefore, my brethren... You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that, here's the purpose, Hena Clause, so that you might be joined to another, to him, that's Jesus, who was raised from the dead, in order that, purpose clause, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Verse 5, he says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law we're at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. 
So stop there. Again, notice in verse 5, did the law of Moses constrain our evil inclinations? No, they were inflamed by it. Now, notice in verse 6, he says, but now, he's talking of believers, now we have been released from the law, having died, that is positionally, to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Now, he's going to answer a question. What shall we say then about the law? Verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. So there's a purpose behind the law. On the contrary, he says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So let's stop there. That was Calvin's first use of the law, which we said hearty amen. Yes, the law does reveal us as sinners. That's the purpose of it. And notice the law that Paul particularly picks out is the 10th commandment, the commandment against covetousness. Now, why does he take that one commandment of the 10 commandments? Why does he use that? Well, at the end of the day, no one can claim that they don't covet. There might be some who say, well, I've never physically murdered anybody. But what covetousness is, at the end of the day, is loving something in the creation more than the creator. And there's not one single human being that can ever say that in their heart they have not coveted. And I believe that that's why that's put at the end. It is a summary of the entire law. And so when Paul uses that, he's using it as a lever arm, not only against himself, but every other human being, every other human being has to acquiesce and say, well, that's true. I love something in the creation and long for that more than the creator. I'm sunk. And in a sense, if you murder, you do so because, or you steal. Let's, let's take stealing. Why do you steal? Because you long for something in the creation more than the creator. So covetousness, in a sense, is the root of all the other sins. So that's why I think he's borrowing that. So that absolutely is devastating for everyone. All of us are guilty, Paul included. So notice verse 8, he says, But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, let's stop there in verse 8. Notice he says, sin taking opportunity through the commandment. The term opportunity is aforme. Bob and I have done uh, uh, by, or, excuse me, radio on Galatians, and Bob pointed this term out. It's used like a beachhead. Yeah. Okay, so think of aforme, this opportunity. When our troops invaded Normandy in World War II, the purpose of getting onto the beachhead is so that you can get further men in. You can get supplies in. You can use it as a bridgehead so that you can go out and invade other territory. In the same way, that's how the law functioned with our sin nature. The sin nature co-ops and uses the law and is incited by the law for greater sin. Isn't that shocking? Now, remember, this is the Apostle Paul saying this. So, again, what's the problem? The problem is our sin nature. Now, verse 9, he says, I was once alive apart from the law, But when the commandment came, still talking about the Mosaic law, sin became alive and I died. That is spiritually to God. Verse 10, and this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. 
Now, verse 11, for sin, again, he reiterates, taking an opportunity, that's the beachhead, through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Let's stop there for a moment. Does Paul have the same optimistic view of the law, that it's the key for sanctification, as Calvin did? Er, no. Now, why is that important? A few years ago, Bob was teaching the book of Galatians. And what is Galatians really all about? It's about people who want to go back to one part of the Mosaic law in order to progress in sanctification, to be right with God, to be more holy, to be more favorable in his sight. It was circumcision. And Paul says in Galatians 3.3, How is it that you who began by the Spirit, which is by faith, are now trying to be perfected by the flesh? How is it that you, I'm paraphrasing now, you began with one system, justification by faith alone, but now you're trying to be sanctified by a different system going back to Moses? Well, Bob did such a wonderful job in teaching the book of Galatians that it offended a niche of people that were in our congregation who wanted to go back to the law, who prided themselves in being reformed and said, well, wait a minute. We don't like this teaching that's always talking about what Christ has done, that focuses on the intent of Scripture. What we want is you two, Eric and Bob, to use the law and start pounding on us so that we'll really be holy and righteous. You guys are too soft on us. Start pounding on us with the law. Or the law will not bring about righteousness. It will incite and inflame evil, sinful desires. But it is not the key to sanctification, as many claim. Bob, do you want to say anything about that? Well, I have a little show and tell quickly. Yeah. Last night, I finished reading those uh, books that Harry could sign Thank to you, me. Bob. I, I, now I have to write an article. <laughs> That's a rough duty. <laughs> well, Any I got through three books. so. But then I grabbed, I needed something to clear my mind, so I grabbed Luther's. I bought this 30 years ago and read it when I was learning what the doctrines of grace are about. Luther, the bondage of the will. And this was his response to Erasmus' diatribe yeah. defending human ability and uh, using the law to excite us. It's really the same thing, yeah. ironically, that Calvin's saying there. Right. So I was reading, after I finished the last of my... Uh, what I would call heresy books. I went back and I started reading a little bit last night from Luther. And ironically, he cites 319 um, and uses it very similarly to what Eric just did. But let me just say this from Luther right here. He's refuting Rome. Okay? We don't need people pushing us back to Rome. Exactly. We need to get away from Rome. Here's what Luther said. Quote, if sin abound by the law, how is it possible that a man can prepare himself by moral works for the favor of God? How can works avail anything when the law avails nothing? But what does it mean when it says that man, assisted by the help of God, can prepare himself by moral works. So he's claiming that Rome says we can take the law and sort of cooperate with it yes. and assist 
by moral works to somehow gain favor with God. That's right. Now, he's talking about justification, but they did the same thing with sanctification. Yes. Okay? And what Luther was claiming in this book, The Bondage of the Will, and honestly, if you want to be someone who knows Christian theology, this is a must-read. It's pivotal. It's really... If you haven't read this, then you don't know what the Reformation was about. Yeah, um, I read this in the 80s when people were getting angry with me because I yeah. was teaching through Romans. And suddenly Romans made people leave church, and so did Galatians. Right, I, right. How's that work? <laughs> Anyhow, um, this is a must-read. Now, the dispute was on the solos. Yeah. Okay? And Paul in Galatians said, Are you so foolish that you've begun by the Spirit, but you're going to be perfected by the flesh? Yeah. And what Luther proves in The Bondage of the Will, that the contrast between the Spirit and the flesh is the contrast between grace and law. And that he affirmed grace alone, faith alone, and so on, and not this cooperation... Exactly. Okay, that that Rome asserted. Right. Amen. Now, the question that we have, dear uh, brothers and sisters, is whether God will keep his promises yeah. and that those who believe in Christ and believe the promises of God and will participate in means of grace that are accessible to all Christians, that God will actually change us. Yeah, amen. And if we're under the new covenant, we're not lacking moral guidance anyhow. Exactly. Well said. So amen. thank you for letting me yeah, do no, show and tell. Good. I came to school to do show and tell today. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Bob. That was excellent. So yeah, we're much closer to Luther. Or Luther, we think, is much closer to the scriptures in the area of sanctification than was Calvin. This idea of going back to the law of Moses as a means of sanctification for the believer is a Roman Catholic doctrine. It's not a biblical one. And so let me give you a, a way to supplant Calvin's three uses of the law. What we, and this comes from Brian Rosner, a book that I had read. I think the categories are biblical. Instead of the, Calvin's first, second, and third use of the law, what the New Testament writers who spoke for Christ did with the law is three things. First of all, they repudiated, that is, they rejected, the Mosaic law is a binding legal code as a way of salvation or sanctification. They rejected it. Repudiation. So that's an R, repudiation. Second, they replaced it. So as Bob just said, we're not lawless. It's not that you and I are antinomians. We're now under the law of Christ. Remember in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said he became all things to all people so that by all means some may be saved. Well, in that section, he said to those who are without the law, I became like one who was without the law, although I myself am, I'm sorry, he says, I myself am not under the law, but I'm under the law of Christ. So he supplants the law of Moses with the law of Christ. So the first thing that we should do is we should repudiate the law of Moses as a way of salvation and sanctification. We should replace it with the new covenant. So we're still under God's commands under Christ. The third thing is the Mosaic Covenant was reappropriated as Scripture. So when we read the... For example, if I read the law in Genesis 15, I see the Abrahamic Covenant. 
That justification was by faith. When Abraham believed God, it was credited him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15.6. Where is that found? It's found in the law. So the law as scripture is always profitable for the people of God, but not as a binding legal code, not as do's and don'ts. I have to do this, I can't do that, I'm going to be right with God. That's not how it functions. It functions so that we learn about God and his salvation that he's provided for us in Jesus Christ. So again, three things we should do with the law. We should repudiate it as a means of salvation, sanctification. We should replace it with the new covenant, the law of Christ, and we should reappropriate it always as scripture, but never as a binding legal code. Those, to me, are far more biblical than the three uses of the law that Calvin has. Okay, let's go on to the next one. That is the nature of the new covenant church. We at Gospel of Grace would differ with Calvin and Calvinists, Westminster, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Confession, all of the confessions that have to do with the nature of the church, particularly because in the Reformed tradition, the church does incorporate people who have not come to saving faith, namely infants. Listen to what they said. This is the nature of the church according to Westminster. It says, quote, The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal, under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Okay, so notice they're claiming that the church is comprised not just of believers, but also of children that belong to believers. Now, where do they get that from? They do try to ground that in Scripture. Turn your Bibles. In fact, I don't have this. Does somebody... Could somebody look up 1 Corinthians 7? I believe it's verse 14. If I remember what they use. 1 Corinthians 7, 14. Brian, would you mind reading that for us? 1 Corinthians 7, 14. I think, let me make sure that's the right passage. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Thank you. So remember the term holy there for the children is hagios, meaning set apart. It's the same term as sanctified, really, right? So here in the discussion in 1 Corinthians 7, the discussion is about whether a believing spouse should leave their unbelieving spouse? And the answer is no. If the unbelieving spouse leaves, you're not bound to pursue them, but you're not to leave them. So notice here, very curiously, in verse 14, whatever is said of the children is also must apply or be said of the unbelieving spouse. Here's what I mean. Notice in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. Now, that's an adult. Are we therefore saying now that you have salvation or justification not just through faith, but through marriage? Think about that. So Craig gets married. Craig's a believer. His wife isn't. Is she justified because she married Craig? Is that what Paul is saying? No. Well, the same would apply to the children because they're also made holy by the believing parent. So my point is, whatever it means to be holy for the children, 
It also is the same for the adult. And we know that an adult couldn't be justified, obviously, apart from saving faith. So what Paul is saying is that because there's a believer in the household, this being set apart means they're going to hear something of the gospel. They're going to hear the word of God, the means of grace. And what comes by hearing? Remember Romans ten seventeen: faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So in that sense, they have a uniqueness to them because they're going to hear about the gospel. In the pagan world with only pagan parents, children will never hear that. So Paul certainly isn't claiming that children are saved or justified merely because they belong to a believing parent any more than he would claim that a a spouse who's an unbeliever is justified by marrying a believer who is a, a, I'm sorry, a spouse who is a believer. Are you with me? So I don't think that that washes. Yeah, Jessica. We got the... So just so we can get the answer to this on the recording, because yes. the, one, the verse that I most often hear people cite to support that view is actually Acts 2.39. Oh, okay. Um, where Peter says, the promise is for you and for your children. Yeah. So if you just want to answer, okay, you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call. And to me, that's the key. But just to get you answering it on the recording for those who will say, what about this verse? How would you answer that? Exactly. So there in that, what you just cited, you have a blending of the universal call. It's for everyone. It's for you. It's for your children. It's for your grandchildren. It's for every single person. The gospel is for everyone. Jesus says that all who come unto him, he will by no wise cast out. That's a universal call. It really is open for everyone. But it's interesting, as you finish the rest of the verse, it's as many as were, would be called. That's the effectual calling. So think about it. The universal call goes out to every single person. Every single person is commanded to repent and believe the gospel. But who actually does of all those who are commanded, which is everyone? Only those who are effectually called. Uh, Remember, Jesus said even of his own disciples, many are called, but few are chosen. I'm sorry, he says that of all believers. He says to his disciples, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. That's the verse I was thinking of. But many are called, but few are chosen. That's the idea. So it's not that salvation is just for the children because they're children or because they belong to a believing parent. But the idea is that salvation is something that's available for everyone. But... It's only effectual for those that God calls and regenerates. And that's where we agree with Calvin. Ironically, that's a passage that supports where Calvin is right, where we're going to come to, which is the need for regeneration. The only way a dead sinner in Adam can ever believe is that if they're regenerated and given the ability to believe. So, yeah, I'm sorry, Jessica. The other thing I always point out in that Oh, I'm sorry. We've got to get you. Yeah, he's fast. <laughs> the other thing I like to point out in that verse is Peter is also calling the parents to repent. Amen. Exactly right. So right. It, it's, it's this call to repent. It's not a promise that if you repent, so will your children. Exactly. It's going out to everyone. That's right. Good point. It's a call for everyone, isn't it? Yeah. Amen. Very good. So the point then is I don't think that the Reformed tradition has a leg to stand on and claiming that children... Just because they belong to believing parents and have been baptized really do belong to the new covenant community. So that's a big issue. Now, why do they hold to this idea? 
that children can be part of the new covenant community. Let me give you two reasons. Number one, the Reformed tradition sees the church as replacing Israel. Okay, they're replacement theologians. Now, they don't like that term, but they really are. They replace Israel with the church. Now, let's think about that. If the church is the new Israel, in in a one-for-one relationship, remember, you had eight-day-old baby boys who were circumcised as part of the old covenant community. What they reason is that, well, therefore, in the new covenant, you can baptize babies, and they're part of the new covenant community. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is under the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Law dealt with a theocratic nation of Israel. And so because you belong to that nation just by your genealogy, just because you were born physically, you had obligations just because you belonged to that nation. But under the New Covenant, the New Covenant has no zip code to it. The new covenant isn't about being born physically from a parent. It's about being born again from above. The only entrance into the new covenant is by faith. Not all children have faith, as we know. So, therefore, that's the problem. They are replacing Israel with the church. Now, why do they do that? Let's go back to the idea of everything after the fall is part of the covenant of grace. If the Mosaic Covenant is the covenant of grace and the New Covenant is a covenant of grace, well, then all we do is, yes, we have a little bit different differences in, for example, the civil and ceremonial laws, but they're really one and the same. So, yes, you had circumcision in the Mosaic Law. Well, now that's just baptism under the New Covenant. That's what they're doing. So let me read to you, and I want to show you, because we had some discussion last week, and I want to maintain that the Reformed tradition really does believe that every covenant, including the Mosaic Covenant, is under the covenant of grace. Listen, in fact, I got Westminster. If anyone wants to see the whole quote uh, from Westminster, I have it here. But for the sake of time, let me just give a summary from a man named Dr. Richard Platt. He teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. Listen to what he says. He says, quote, The Westminster Confession of Faith speaks of God condescending to reveal himself to humanity by means of a covenant. It then divides the entire history of the Bible into just two covenants, the covenant of works in Adam and the covenant of grace in Christ. The covenant of works was God's arrangement with Adam and Eve before their fall into sin. The covenant of grace garnered, or I'm sorry, excuse me, (laughs) my eyes are going, I think, governed the rest of the Bible. In this view, all stages of the covenant of grace were the same in substance. They differed only as God administered his one covenant of grace in Christ in various ways throughout biblical history. Again, because they see as covenant theologians every covenant, including the Mosaic Covenant, under the rubric of the covenant of grace... They see a one-to-one relationship between circumcision and baptism, between the infants that belong to Israel and the infants that belong to New Covenant believers. They are one and the same. Now, one problem that Bob and I have, first of all, with covenant theology regarding the two covenants, think about this covenant of works. Where do we see in the first three chapters the term covenant used by God? 
We don't see that. The term bereath is used for covenant. In fact, when God uses a covenant or institutes a covenant, he typically cuts a covenant, like we see in Genesis 15. Karath is the term for cut. Bereath is the term for covenant. Karath, bereath, he cuts a covenant. Well, there was no covenant of works that you see with Adam. Now, saying that, yes, we would certainly agree that God graciously works to save, and he graciously works in every dispensation. However, is it really right to think of the Mosaic law as a covenant of grace? Let's think about that. Let's look at some scriptures that seem to show that there's a big distinction between the new and the old covenant. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. We'll look at verses 31 through 32 for the sake of time. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 32. Here's a prophet who speaks on behalf of God. He is an Israelite, Jeremiah. And listen to how he says in verse 32 of Jeremiah 31 that the new covenant is not going to be like the old covenant. There's a distinction between the two. Why is that important? Because the Reformed tradition sees too much being similar between the two. Okay, if there's too much similar, there's no distinction, well, then we've got ourselves problems. I want to show you that the biblical writers say there's big distinctions between the two. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 32. Jeremiah says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 32, Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now stop there. Why is it not going to be like the old covenant? Because as you continue reading, God is going to take his spirit and he's going to deposit it upon his people and he's going to enable them to believe. What the Mosaic law was unable to do because it merely incited our sin nature by the spirit, he is going to incite us to to believe. He's going to enable us to believe. Now, let me give you a contrast. Do you remember at the giving of the law? That happened at Pentecost. Uh, in fact, Dana talked about this a few weeks ago, I think. Was it last week, Dana? Or, uh, the 3,000 and the 3,000? Yeah, last week. There it was. I, the weeks all blend together for me. Sorry about that. The week before. The week before, okay. Think of the first Pentecost when the law came. How many died? Remember when they built the golden calf? It says 3,000 perished. So when the law came, 3,000 died. It's, it's, it's literal, but it's also symbolic. The law kills. In Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit came again at Pentecost, so you have Pentecost, Pentecost, first Pentecost giving the law, 3,000 die. Acts 2, the Pentecost giving of the Spirit, how many came to believe? 3,000. 3, so what the law killed, the Spirit enabled to bring about life. We're intended to see that contrast. There's a big difference between the Mosaic Law and the New Covenant. The two covenants are different. Yeah, one more passage. Let me just talk about, remember we talked about Galatians 4 last week? Galatians 4, and I'll just put the verses down, verses 20 through 31. We talked about that. I'm sorry, not last week, but whenever I did the last message in Sunday school. In Galatians 4, Paul contrasts two women. He contrasts Hagar and Sarah. Hagar is a woman who had Ishmael, and she symbolizes the Mosaic law, the covenant of works. 
Now, let's remember, why would that be? Well, God had commanded and said and given a promise to Abraham and to Sarah that they were going to have a child. Well, they believed, but they also thought, I think, well, we better help God out. After all, he uses means, doesn't he? So it'd be like the old joke where the guy says, um, he's praying and praying, he's drowning. He's drowning, he's in the water, and he's praying to God, please save me, and all of a sudden the boat comes. He doesn't get in the boat. He says, no, God's going to save me. Well, then later the helicopter comes. And he says, no, no, I don't need the helicopter. God's going to save me. Well, finally he ends up drowning and he goes to heaven. He says, well, God, I kept praying. Why didn't you save me? He goes, well, I sent you a boat and a helicopter, right? And I mean that because I think maybe Abraham and Sarah thought that. That, yes, God has promised us a son, but we have to help him out. We're going to do something. We're going to do works. We're going to use Hagar because she's younger. So Hagar forever represents human works. But the promise came supernaturally by God alone through Sarah. She was too old to have children, and so was Abraham. And so the distinction between Hagar and Sarah is a distinction between human works, Hagar, and God's sovereign grace, supernatural power, Sarah. That's the distinction. So they represent two different covenants in Galatians 4. Now, if the Reformed tradition is right, that they're really just all part of the rubric of the covenant of grace, why is Paul saying, no, one belongs to Hagar, one belongs to works, one belongs to the present Jerusalem, which is under bondage, but no, the other one is the one of promise, the other one of grace, the one that belongs to the new Jerusalem, which is above, which is free. Why does Paul make those distinctions if the Reformed tradition is right, that they should both the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant are under the rubric of the covenant of grace. No, they don't see the correct distinctions. Yes, I'm sorry, we got several questions. And the under the uh, the model, the oh, does anybody else have a synonym for that? Paradigm. Paradigm. Paradigm is good. Paradigm. Yes, paradigm. Does that work? I'm sorry. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Tom. Excellent. Um, I'm sorry. Yes, Scott. I was just going to clarify for anybody that didn't realize um, that replacement theology and covenant theology are one and the same, are they not? That's right. That's right. Exactly. So because the Mosaic covenant is part of the covenant of grace, Israel had circumcision. The church has baptism. The church is just now the new Israel. Therefore, they replaced Israel with the church, and that's the term replacement. And it's more than baptism. They do the same with Sabbath. They do the same with Sabbath, exactly. They claim that Sunday is now the valid Sabbath. Exactly. And it must be kept in a very similar way than the Old Testament uh, Jewish Sabbath or what they were doing during Jesus' day. That's right. On Shabbat, which would be Saturday. That's right. Now... They're very, very strong in that, and that's part yeah. of their theocracy. Yep. They, would, they want to institute Sabbath laws and force everyone in geographical territories to obey those laws, Yeah. whether they want to or not. And the only problem with it, now one time anywhere in the Bible, is Sunday called Sabbath. Yes. And so they make that up whole cloth and ignore the passage in Hebrews the days of worship are part of liberty. Right. We're right. not under Sabbath laws. And they ignore Hebrews 9, yeah. which is all about what you're talking about. Exactly. And they ignore the fact that the sine qua non 
of new covenant salvation and sanctification is the presence of the Spirit. Exactly. Okay. Paul makes that very clear in Galatians 3, where he says in verse 2, I only want you to learn learn this from you. That is those people who want to go back to law. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing of faith? Yeah. Okay. Jeremiah made the presence of the Spirit the real, the key thing that would be the new covenant. Yeah. Hebrews talks about it. That's and right. so are they, some do, do they claim that when you baptize an infant, the Holy Spirit regenerates the infant? That's right. Some Lutherans claim that. That's right, yeah. Well, uh, that is not biblical. Right, that's right. Okay, and so what we end up with is religious persons yeah. uh, trained in churches that claim to be Christian, taught to act religious, yeah. pounded with a whip by the law, yeah. and say, you do this, you do this, you do this, and if you don't conform, we will expel you. If we find out you own a business and you're in the Reformed <coughs> me. Reform church yeah. and you are open on Sunday, you shall be expelled from the church. Wow. Wow. Because God is angry with any Christian who has a business open on Sunday. Wow. So they're, first of all, taking Sabbath, put it into Sunday. Secondly, using it as a stick to beat people with. That's right. And then demanding conformity, conformity, conformity. Punishing people for marrying outside of their little denomination. And doing all of these things. Yeah. In keeping with Calvin and all these creeds. Yeah. And Eric and I are saying... No. Amen. You don't receive the Holy Spirit in that manner. That's right. You receive the Spirit by faith. Amen. As Paul said in Galatians 3 and verse 2. Yeah, Bob, the, the Sabbath issue is a really good one. Um, I'm sorry, do we have another question? Yeah, uh, Nancy. Oh I'm, oh, I'm sorry, Jessica first. and then. Um, but let me just say this. You're exactly right. So think about what Bob is saying. If the church is the new Israel, Israel had Sabbath on Saturday... Therefore, because the church is Israel, they have to have Sabbath too. So Sabbath shifts from Saturday to Sunday. But what's interesting is it's never referred to as Sabbath on Sunday. It's referred to as the Lord's Day. It's referred to as the first day of the week. But Sabbath used 52 times in the New Testament always refers to Saturday Sabbath. Remember in Colossians 2, 16 on, Paul says, and this is a command from the Apostle Paul, who speaks authoritatively for Christ. He says, no, let no one judge you with respect to food or drink, with respect to new moon festivals or days, or Sabbaths, which were merely a shadow, but the substance is Christ. We have labored hard here at Gospel of Grace to show from Hebrews 4 that your Sabbath rest isn't found on a day, it's found in a person. That's how it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The moment you come to Jesus Christ by faith, you have the Lord of the Sabbath, and you have rest every day of your, of your life. You've rested from your works just as God rested from his. Sabbath rest isn't found in a day. It's found in a person. And those who claim that it's found in a day are obfuscating, they're, they're confusing the gospel. They're, they're confusing 
the shadow with the su- the substance for the shadow. That's what they want to bring us back to. Yeah, I'm sorry, Jessica. I just wanted to clarify since we've been talking about Calvin. Yeah. Calvin didn't actually teach Sunday as the new Sabbath or Sabbath law. Uh, what Calvin taught was that we need to meet together regularly as believers and sit under the means of grace. Yeah. So while a lot of people who would call themselves Calvinists or Reformed or Covenant theology teach that, Calvin himself didn't actually teach that. Do you know where it came from, Jessica? Uh, uh, for me, it came from you. <laughs> but a couple of years ago, he sent me a document out of, I think, out of Calvin's Institutes where Calvin talked about what he believed on Sabbath. Right. I think it comes from the creeds and councils. It that does. It comes from West. Late. I had it here. Yeah. It comes later in the creeds and councils, which they consider binding. That's right. And they'll create an entire doctrine based on a couple words out of one of the Calvinist creeds. Yeah. Like the whole desiring God, for example, comes from a little line in one of the confessions. Yeah, Westminster. I have it. I had it. Here we go. We're prepared. I I will bring that that quote next week, but you're right. It's Westminster, and that's what's interesting is some of the people at Westminster, when when the the, the Church of England wants to put together this confession in the 1600s, that's going to be the end-all, be-all confession so that you sign on to it, and therefore you're not going to be aberrant in your theology as Mm -hmm. someone following Calvin. They sometimes went beyond Calvin. So Westminster, absolutely, they would say Sabbath is now on Sunday. So, yep. yeah. And I've got so the I still I have the document that, that you sent me a couple of years ago. So if anybody's interested in yeah. it, let me know and I'll send it. Because I actually thought he had some very good words on Christian Sabbath as it is. You know what's funny? Just with that, Jessica, and I'm sorry, I'll let you speak too, Nancy, here. I, one thing, what's interesting about Calvin is you'll, you'll hear him say something. You'll read a section, for example, on baptism. And he'll talk about it being a sign of the covenant. And I'll say, amen. But then another writing he'll have, he'll talk about the fact that it's Jesus Christ spiritually nourishing us in a mysterious way. And that somehow if we don't partake in the body and blood of Christ, we are depriving ourselves of being nourished by the true body and blood of Christ. Now, he claims that in a spiritual way, but all of a sudden he goes from the idea of we do baptism because it's a sign of what has happened inwardly to that, no, there's something effectual about the act done, almost ex opere operato. And so it's this equivocation. And so you, I, I'm not saying that he doesn't hold firm on the understanding of Sabbath, but a lot of times you'll read him in one section, you think, well, I agree with that. But in all of a sudden, another, he just falls off the cliff. And I'll show you that when we get to baptism in the Lord's Supper. There's, there's sayings that Calvin has that I would say are outright heretical. And, um, and I, again, he just may be confused, but... Uh, Anyway, I'll, I'll, we'll talk about that next time. But anyway, I'm sorry. Nancy, go ahead. You had a comment or a question. Well, I had a scripture that came to mind when we were talking about the Old Covenant um, being obsolete, and I think it represents really well the fact that it was really only intended to be temporary, and it was in Hebrew. Um, 8.13. 8, 8.6. But now okay. he has obtained a more excellent ministry, but as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on, on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. Amen. Can you read 8.13 to skip all the way down to that? Listen, to, I want everyone to leave with these words. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. 
but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So what is the Mosaic Covenant? It is obsolete. Let us not go back to it. Brothers and sisters, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do pray, Lord, that you would keep us from wanting to go back to works, going back to the law as a means of sanctification, that we'd realize that we have all we need in Jesus Christ, that we have all we need for justification and sanctification and one-day glorification through faith in your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.